So um, there was eight of us that went to the uh, Shepherds Conference this past week. And uh, the theme of the conference is something that I've been dwelling on all week. It had to do with being unashamed. And it comes from, you know, Romans 1, chapter 16, or verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Think about that, the power of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible grace we've received and the faith to believe. I pray your Holy Spirit dwelling in us will enable and direct you your truth to all of us this day, even now at 9 o'clock and at 10 o'clock as in all our worship. Take us to the cross to praise and worship you as we inquire and investigate just as the Bereans did and we call on the name of the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, last week we talked about challenging prayers. Today we're going to talk about hurdles to challenging prayers. You know, many of us thank God in, in good times, and we pray urgently in hard times, and we forget to pray in busy times. In this session, we're going to look at Paul's prayer in Philippians 1. It's actually going to be 3 through 11, but we're, we're going to divide it 3 to 8, and then what I think is the opus of the prayer, verses 9 to 11. So I'm going to read the whole passage first. We're going to look at the video, and he's going to repeat the same thing. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, I mentioned it's a short prayer and what I'm talking about is verses 9 through 11. But it's quite profound, and it can help us overcome our spiritual dryness and excuses. It's also going to encourage us to overcome some obstacles. You know, last week's lesson, like I, uh, I mentioned, um, on challenging prayers, it's going to help us to refocus on what's excellent. So if we could watch the video now, we'll do that first. One of the attractive things about the Apostle Paul and the portrait of him that God gives us is his hunger for what is excellent. There is no hint in his life that he, he wants to coast or, or drift or remain static. After being an apostle for many years, he, he still wants to know Christ and to, to make him known. This next prayer that we study in this fifth session of the series finds Paul praying for a certain kind of excellence.
In this prayer, in Philippians chapter 1, we find Paul again in prison and praying for believers, but this time believers with whom he has had a very close connection. Unlike the church in Colossae, the church in Philippi was clearly close to Paul's heart. We find out that they are ones who early inquired as to what kind of support they could offer, fiscal support, as he goes on to the next town to preach the gospel and, and so forth. He, he clearly has a, a warm-hearted relationship with them. And when he talks about them, he speaks of his partnership in the gospel with them. He thanks God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day of their conversion. In scholarly guilds, people write strange books called Festschriften, literally a, a, a celebratory writing. Uh, somebody reaches a certain age and friends may, for example, write a book of essays in his honor. Uh, a number of years ago, some friends wrote a book like that for me. And one of my friends who had uh, been asked to introduce the book to me when it was presented said in a rather moving speech that the reason he viewed himself as close to me was because of our shared commitment to the gospel. But if, God forbid, I forsook that, if, God forbid, I slept with somebody else's wife or distorted the gospel or moved away from my confidence in Scripture, then although in certain ways he could still love me as a fellow human being, in certain ways he would grieve over me and care for me, wanting me to come back to the faith, yet, yet there's a sense in which he would be alienated from me because there is a kind of intimacy in the gospel, a kind of friendship, a kind of solidarity, a kind of joint shoulder to the plow uh, relationship and intimacy that is shared by brothers and sisters who have this same passion for the gospel. In other words, we share not only forgiveness of sins and knowledge of God through faith in Christ Jesus, we share also this public commitment to the gospel that means we are yoked together, we are co-workers together with God in the promulgation of the gospel. So Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That suggests that there ought to be a kind of realm of praying that is bound up with relationships that are tightly tied together by this partnership in the gospel. We are not isolated islands doing our own thing in our own way. We work with other people in the promulgation, the announcement, the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this lost and needy world. And then he adds, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is, when they were converted, the Philippians immediately showed this concern for the promotion of the gospel, the well-being of the apostle who preached the gospel and so forth. And Paul is confident that if, in fact, God has begun this good work in them, in which they're so identified with the gospel that they want to 
partner with the apostle in this regard, he is convinced that the God who began this work in them will carry it forward all the way to the very end. God knows how to complete what he has begun in the life of this church in Philippi. Then the second thing to observe about this passage is that uh, Paul insists he is right to feel this way. That's a remarkable bit of self-reflection. It's as if he analyzes his own motivations, his own, his own priorities, his own concerns, and he, he makes a judgment call. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. I love you, he says, so it is right that I should talk of you this way, think of you this way, pray for you this way. Whether I'm in chains or not, God can testify, he says, how I long for all of you. So once again, Paul goes back to his sheer love for brothers and sisters in Christ, a love that he works at improving. And then comes Paul's prayer for them. And here the language is a bit different again, yet it overlaps with what we've already seen. Listen to this language. This is my prayer, he says, almost as if he wants to draw attention to the actual burden of what he prays for them. He wants them to know what he prays for them for. And he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So once again, it's prayer that their love may increase. They won't just be static and say, well, yes, our lives have changed. Now we've reached a certain plateau and we're comfortable to stay here. Don't bother us with too much more, thank you. We don't want to become fanatics in our Christian faith. No, there's not a hint of that. What we want instead is such transparent growth in the way we love one another that we will become more discerning. Isn't that remarkable? It's as if you cannot really pursue what is best in Christian discipleship. You cannot pursue what is best in knowledge of God and depth of grasp of Holy Scripture and growth and maturity in the church of the living God unless there's also a growth in love for one another. In other words, one of the worst ways, the easiest ways to ensure that you will not grow toward excellence, towards what is best, is simply to nurture lovelessness in the heart. I have met many Christians who over the years have preserved some kind of bitterness because they or their loved ones did not receive the honor that they thought was their due, or because of some slight, real or imagined that they suffered years ago, or because of envy, they don't like to admit that other people are more gifted or more attractive or more fruitful than they are, so they go through life putting other people down. And the result is that instead of displaying Christian grace and Christian love, and as a result, Christian maturity and increased discernment, in fact, they simply become disgruntled. They become whiners. 
They remind me of the Israelites in the desert, always whining, always whining, which Paul associates with idolatry in the pattern of Moses himself. So if we really do want to grow towards excellence in Christian discipleship, one of the things that we must nurture is increased love amongst believers. And for that, we'd better have the power of God. And for that, we ought to be praying to God for such power that we will be passionate about one another, caring for one another, with a long-range goal then of growing in excellence, excellence in our Christian discipleship, so that over the years we can look back and testify that, that we have grown. And even as we're looking forward to growing some more, and all of this, once again, with this passionate view toward the glory and praise of God, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, this text asks us, do you pray for the kinds of fruitfulness and grace, for the kind of communal love amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ that are the prerequisites for the passionate pursuit of sheer excellence in Christian discipleship and all of this for the praise and glory of God? If not, why not? And if you do, then this will extend your praying along apostolic lines as you learn to align your prayer life with what the Bible teaches us in its instruction how to pray. So, just to go over some context again, Paul's in prison still, waiting to be executed. And, you know, I wonder if God had him in prison so that he'd have time to write these epistles and letters that we find in the New Testament. If not, I'm guessing he would have been busy preaching in ever more cities for the sake of the gospel. He might have ended up in Spain, which is one of the places he intended to go. You read that in the beginning of Romans. But he starts out all of his prayers, in case you haven't noticed, with thanks. It's always in the forefront of Paul's prayers. And to who does he give thanks? Well, he, to God. For what? The partnership that he has with all the believers that have believed the gospel. It's always the gospel. That's always preeminent for Paul. There's this relentless gospel focus in Paul's prayers that should make us consider, you know, what ties our relationships, what ties our relationships together? You know, what are our conversations about after church, you know, or in small groups or around the dinner table? Um, these things are all essential to Christian fellowship. And only the gospel, as, as he pointed out, is strong enough to bring people together you know, from different ethnicities, different social classes, different employment sectors, different personality types, different life circumstances, all as it directs our conversation and priorities in prayer. That, that was very noticeable up at the, um, the Shepherds Conference. Now, this was my first time. You may have, going to the conference, you may have uh, heard about it from other people that have been before. 4,000, over 4,000 men there 
Um, it was something, something else, something to behold. So in verse 6, he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's also reflected in a, in a later passage in uh, Philippians 2.13. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you ever become discouraged by lack of progress in your Christian life, maybe in your prayer life? You know, this can be particularly true in our prayer life as we wonder, you know, because I wonder the same thing sometimes. Is, is this a conversation? Am I having a dialogue? Because I'm not hearing anything back. Yet it's always God who completes what he starts, even if we don't. If you wonder why I'm up here leading this class, well, <laughs> so have I to tell you the truth. Um, I do have a sense, however, that God's at work with a purpose. I don't know what the purpose is, but I'm, I'm going to leave that up to him. You know, I've been thinking, this has all brought up thoughts about Moses ever since this class started. And in this month's table talk, um, it's all been about Moses so far. You know, the Lord's on a mission to make himself known to the whole world, and Moses is to be his voice to accomplish this, his purposes. And Moses objects. He says, you know, I have uncircumcised lips. In other words, I'm unqualified. You ever feel that way about prayer? Israel's going to come out of Egypt, not because of Moses. He's only a mouthpiece. This is the Lord's work. Not only is he going to save his people, he also has another purpose, to make God known. Pharaoh has said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God saves Israel to show the world who he is. That's who. This is who I am. That the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. Our redemption isn't about us. It's about God manifesting his glory to the world. You know, when I think about this, I realize my salvation isn't about me. It's not about my prayers either. It's, it's to God's glory. My prayers need to keep that in mind. Our prayers need to keep that in mind. They may seem small and, and we may think that we have um, failing lips, but no matter, it's to God's glory. You know, at the Shepherds Conference, I'll make, this, make a point of this, Ninos wore the glory t-shirt. And I understand many people wanted to know where he got it. Well, we know where he got it. And back to Moses, you know, he saw it to completion too. You know, in many ways, I can see Paul as a reflection of Moses. Neither were interested in the job. Neither were interested in the job that God had planned for them, for God's purposes. I mean, Moses had been, what was he, 80 years old, been in the desert herding sheep for the last 40 years, and he, he's confronted by a burning bush. Paul, going to Damascus to persecute believers, and he's blinded, and he hears the voice of Jesus. God had his purposes, and he used unusual uh, events to get that, uh, this across. You know, um, in the passage he just read in verses 9 and 10, it explains Paul's two aims in this prayer. Abounding love so that you may approve what is excellent. You know, believers will approve what's excellent when their hearts and minds and value systems are reordered around God's purposes in Christ. 
This abounding love is that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, as stated in, in Philippians uh, 2, 14, and 16a. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted time. It can be frustrating for us. Look back on, I look at all, all that's going on in the world when I read the news and uh, listen to people talking. And, but you know, at the same time I think God's doing something here. He's, he's got this in control. So I want to talk about three things uh, from these verses um, 9 through 11, which I think are pretty incredible. I'm going to start off talking about, because I think this is, everything is based on, on what Paul says about praying for what is excellent. You know, the love which Paul prays for, it's not an end in itself, it's a means to an end. He always begins his prayers with a declaration of love. Have you noticed that? Here he prays for their, that their love may increase, and that it's directed, and that is directed mainly so that they might discern and approve what is best. You know, what is best is it's fair to say what he's the word he wants to use there is what is excellent. And what becomes clear is that this leads to the death of entrenched mediocrity or smug uh, self-satisfaction or contentment with their own excuses. To discern and approve what is excellent, Christians must be characterized by this abounding love. D.A. Carson just talked about there in the, uh, in the video. There is a, a qualification, though, that he's also including that the love be discriminating. It has to be constrained by knowledge and a depth of insight. And without these constraints, love can, you know, it can degenerate into sentimentality, the, the kind that the world believes in, the world confuses with love, real love, and also with knowledge and insight. Paul's speaking to a moral perception across the entire gamut of life's experiences. Love without knowledge and discernment, is, it becomes a parody of itself. There are countless decisions in life where it's not a question of making a straightforward decision between right and wrong. His point, then, is that love is shaped and honed by knowledge and moral insight or perception. The perception that's required to test and approve what's best. And Paul wants to know Christ. He prays for them to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You know, in John uh, 12, we read, there were Greeks who wanted to know Christ. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Christ. Do all of you wish to see Christ? I'm also reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He was reading from Isaiah 53. I believe Ryan read that last week at, uh, at communion. But he didn't understand what he was reading and who the scripture was about. And Philip ran up to him and, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And I, this is Paul's prayer, that they be guided to excellence. And from prison, he's trying to do exactly that, that they might become mature in Christ and in discipleship. Above all, these excellent things result in a growing knowledge of Jesus. It's a knowledge and discernment. That is, it doesn't turn on, a, on transparent distinctions between right and wrong. It turns rather on choices that re reflect one's value system, one's worldview, one's priorities, one's heart, one's mind. Let me give you some examples here. How we use time, how we witness. Compassion deepened over the years making us less cynical. We're stepping outside of our comfort zone. Living and serving in situations of difficult self-denial. Bible study, prayer. You know, and be, behind our answer to these questions are, are choices. And, you know, choices, I find this kind of interesting. Choices are binary. Sort of, I don't, you know, I'm not a big tech guy, but 40 years ago I took a, a class on basic coding just because I was kind of curious about it that time I went to, back to college up in Portland. Everything is either if yes, then this, and if no, then that. It's, it's somewhat humorous that most of the young today who view the world as non-binary exist in a binary milieu. Did I say that correctly, milieu? I think that's what it was. One of the things I see missing these days is accepting the idea that all life is a series of choices. Make a choice, make a decision, what do you get? You get responsibilities. If your love rebounds more and more, shaped all the while by knowledge and moral insight, we will be wanting to make our choices well. Excellent. The choices can't be made on the basis of mere law, they come about from a heart transformed by God's grace. Take the use of time that I mentioned at the beginning there. We have 24 hours a day. All of us are different in our approaches, you know, uh, our needs, our basic needs like sleep, work, recreation. You know, how do we redeem time when the Bible says these days are evil? You know, it signals different things to different Christians and in how you invest your hours. You know, I met some very committed Christians up at the Shepherds Conference this past week, and I'm, I'm guessing that very few of them are as intense or committed to serving God as the Apostle Paul was. I know I'm not, but there were, there were a few. And I asked myself, you know, thinking about this, do I find myself seeking excellence and insight that I didn't have before? Well. At least for the latter part I do. Sometimes I wonder if I'm really seeking excellence. Have a lot of distractions. Golf. I'm seeking excellence there, that's for sure. That ain't happening. You know, Paul's prayer cuts through all this tangle. He prays for Christians at every stage of their spiritual growth to seek excellence, knowing that it only comes about with transformed hearts. You know, we can rest assured that, that we're being sanctified even over years of time. And we're also being transformed at the same time. So a question, 
How much have you prayed for what is best for a spiritual harvest, for conversion, for demonstration of fruit of the Spirit? You know, each of us needs to ask, to what extent do I pray for excellent things? The things judged excellent by God, both for myself and for those around me. Do I pray that my love may abound? May abound more knowledge or perception and insight so that I can distinguish between the passable and the excellent, the acceptable and the best? Do I pray this for my church? Or do I prefer mediocrity? And maybe it's not exactly that I prefer mediocrity, I just let mediocrity happen. No, Paul is certain that what is excellent cannot be attained without prayer. And so the next point I want to make going along, going, going after that is that Paul is taking the long view here. There's a sense that the Bible gives the impression that two things depend on love's increase. Love's increasing. To discern what's best and to be pure and blameless. And Paul prays that believers will test and approve what's excellent. He's always going to go back to excellent. That's kind of the foundation for a, for a lot of what he's, he's praying for here. And this isn't an intellectual exercise. His, his goal is the, the exercise of transparency, of utter blamelessness and righteousness. You know, and this, this can challenge our mental powers, but it's a challenge of all our powers and all of our being. It, it finally issues a transformed life by the way of sanctification. There's two expressions, I think, that need, to, need ex- explanation here. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness is often rendered as justification. It's the fruit that results from justification, that, that decisive act of God whereby we receive Christ's righteousness. Proverbs 11.30. It says, the fruit of righteousness, salvation, is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. That's the positive. Look at the negative, though, in Amos 6.24. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Have you ever noted, I've noted this in the scriptures a lot, especially the last couple of years, with the start of uh, CRT and some of the other popular uh, philosophies that are popping up all over the place. But, you know, the words justice and righteousness are almost always related in the same verse in scripture. I see it all throughout scripture as I'm reading. If there's justice, it's, it's followed, you know, comma, something about righteousness, or vice versa. But, you know, the result is that there's no justice from unrighteousness. And without righteousness, you're not going to find justice. That's, that's why they're always together. You have to have both. You can't ever have one without the other. The fruit is characterized by, by conduct, by our actions, our words, our thoughts, that God judges to be right. You know, this is a product of spiritual growth. It's made possible by Christ. We read about this in Paul's letter to the Galatians in in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. Paul never exhorts us to try harder apart from being a Christian worthy of Christ. He's also the first to acknowledge that righteous living is finally a product of God's grace. You know the phrase, for the day of Christ in verse 10, we find Paul praying once again regarding the theme of perseverance. Talked about that in, in a previous class. He's not saying you must show more signs of right conduct or face a horrible judgment. Rather, he's making a compelling statement here about living with a view to the day of Christ and in doing it in such a way that shows we're moving towards that day and we're contained by it. We've heard that there are now threats uh, in the Ukraine and other parts of the world that supposedly Russia hasn't ruled out the use of nuclear weapons. You know, we live in San Diego. It's always been a military town, huge naval presence here. So we're probably a, a target. Have you felt the, with that in mind, have you felt the day of Christ impinging on your life? Thoughts this week? Here again, even thinking that, it's a call to excellence. The church is an outpost of, of heaven in this temporal fear. By the grace of God, we're not what we were. But as long as we're here, we are to struggle against sin and anticipate as we're able to live with a view towards the day of Christ. We're a type of a, a missionary community, a mission outpost to a dying, decaying world. And we proclaim to unbelief either salvation or judgment. That's binary. Paul's praying then for nothing less than revival. The text teaches us to, to pray that we'll test and prove for ourselves the holiest things, all with a view to the day of Christ. This is the long view, the day of Christ. You know, when revival comes, resentments are dissolved. Self-promotions turn ugly. They wither away. People are more concerned to be holy. They embrace self-denial. They learn to love. When revival comes, worship is no longer an exercise. It's a characteristic of our lives. When we became believers, that was the start of our personal revival. And you know, the revival Paul prays for is not exhorting people to better behavior or trying to organize a revival, because that's the work of God. The work of the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit is because of what Jesus the Christ has accomplished. So my last point here, Paul's prayer is not idolatrous, but praises God. You know, pursuing excellence can be, it can become idolatrous. A good example is perfectionist parents. They can be very hard on their children not only in basic conduct, but also sports and schoolwork. And without realizing it, the child feels belittled, belittled by the chiding for not meeting standards that for them are unrealistic. You know, I, I've, I'm not a parent, so I hope I'm not talking out of school here. I, I look around and I see people with children. But I have seen it, just observed it, you know, Go to a little league game or something and, and watch how some of the parents react. Perfection can also invade the church. We can listen to able preachers, our minds informed, our hearts challenged, 
They may even reshape our thinking by the word of God, but even they can get burned out by trying to be perfect every Sunday. Afraid of not being prepared. They may not be content to preach. We need to pray for them. God's not interested in 100% perfection. God wants us to trust him, to obey him. And the focus should be on him. Do you find yourself tardy uh, with prayer because you think it has to be perfect, as if God won't hear his people? Perfectionism is not allegiance to God in his gospel. It only reflects our personality. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is what our motives are. Of course, there, there's different personalities. E each of us has our own strengths. You know, we're concerned, are we concerned, to utilize the gift and graces God has given us? You know, it's at this point that Paul is careful. He prays for what is best, and he understands that the best must issue in the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he carefully adds that all these are to the glory and praise of God. That's the acid, the acid test, the test of our motives. If we're to be honest with the motive question, we'll avoid the likelihood of our prayers and our service becoming a source of secret pride. If that isn't the case, our concern for quality be, be nothing more than self-worship. I'm betting that there are more people worshiping the self, dancing around the golden calf, because they don't really know Jesus. Paul has already tried to, to quash that at the start by praying for their love to abound. A love that's self-denying, that seeks God's interest and our fellow believers' good. You know, our pursuit of what is excellent is increasingly impelled by discerning love and, and directed to the glory and, and praise of God. You know, a line from uh, a hymn we sang at the Shepherds Conference had this phrase. We've all heard sight to faith. The other part is prayer to praise. You know, I'd never noticed that before, the prayer to praise part. In the first lesson back in uh, <clears throat> February, I mentioned Dave Kunsky calling me from his deathbed to pray for me and, uh, and asking myself, who does that? And I noted that Christ did the same on the cross. And, you know, there was something that was really interesting pointed out this past week at the Shepherds Conference Christ did the same thing as he ascended to heaven. And we find it in Luke 24, 51. I hope I gave you that verse. <laughs> it says, he's, he's ascending to heaven. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. His intercession in heaven before the Father on our behalf began as his feet left the ground. And it's still going on now. I mentioned that, um, I think, last week from Revelation 8. That's pretty amazing. He was, even as he departed, he's, he was interceding for us. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the most influential, influential preachers of the past century. And he's one of my favorite authors. A few weeks before he died, someone asked him how he was coping with his present suffering. And he quoted from Luke 10, verse 24. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject, subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Tie your joy in your prayers to the fact that you're known and loved by God. Tie your salvation to the truth that your name is written in heaven. And that can never be taken away from you. Paul's pursuit of prayer of what is excellent, it's not idolatrous. It's bound up in praising God. He would have understood the ancient Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision. I want to look at that, if you could put that up there. I've underlined some of the things I think Paul would have been praying about. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, working or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Be thou my battle shield, sword for my fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight. Thou my soul's shelter, thou my high tower. Raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thine mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. High king of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven joy, heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, ruler of all. You know, at the shepherd's conference, I'm almost done here, at the Shepherd's Conference, one of the things I took note of was the hymns we sang. So many of the hymns we sang were hymns of praise and prayer, to name a few. Fount of many blessings. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Every promise of your word. These are all hymns that we sing here on Sundays. Haven't heard this one, though. I stand amazed. The chorus, how marvelous, how wonderful. You know, 4,000 men, their voices building verse by verse in prayer and praise. The worship was truly a glimpse of heaven. So, you know, I want to end here with this prayer from Psalm 119, verses 89 and 94. And this will be my, my ending prayer. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for what you have bestowed on us through your Son, Jesus, the grace and salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.